Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 11, Jumpin' Jack. The area of London known as Hammersmith has had people living there for at least 5,000 years. That in and of itself would give us plenty of history to talk about, but... We're under the gas lamp, so we're going to bypass all of that and find ourselves on the streets of Hammersmith in November 1803. According to the averages back then for that time of year, night time was cold, around 6 degrees or 43 Fahrenheit, and rain was most likely to be falling too. So we find ourselves walking the dark, pre-lamp streets of Hammersmith. Any lighting we would have had would have been dim and barely covering the paving it stood on, let alone providing us with any real illumination. The narrow streets stink of refuse and buildings loom above us. Slick, wet streets offer their own problems as you hunker into your coat and the patter of drizzling rain on your hat makes you wish you were already at home in front of a warm fire and with a stiff drink in your hand. Then you see something ahead, barely lit in the hopeless glow of the few street lights in the area. They're very tall and they're staring at you. Pale, dressed all in white, The dim light lets you barely see them. Unsure if they're male or female, you continue walking only to see them slip down an alleyway. By the time you get to where they were standing, looking down that lane into the darkness, no one is there. Did you see anyone? Or was it a ghost? Shaken, you hurry home. And next day, in the newspaper, with ink still wet from printing, you read of reports of people seeing a figure, all in white, having been seen on the streets of Hammersmith. Thus was born the legend of the Hammersmith ghost. The apparition was described as being very tall and dressed all in white. Hammersmith locals believed that it was the ghost of a man that had committed suicide and yet was still buried in the Hammersmith churchyard. This being consecrated ground, the man's soul could not rest and thus had taken to roaming the streets at night. And then the attacks began. Two women, one elderly and the other pregnant, were apparently seized on separate occasions by the ghost while they walked near the churchyard. Reportedly, these two perfect examples of human vulnerability were so frightened that they both died of shock within days of their assaults. Not long after these reports, a brewer's servant by the name of Thomas Groom testified that while walking through the churchyard with a companion, at around 9pm at night, saw something rise from behind a tombstone and seize him by the throat. Hearing the noise behind him, Thomas's companion 
turned and at that point the ghost apparently twisted him around. Attempting to push it away, his companion reports that he felt something soft, like a great coat. I have a lot of questions about that report to be honest. London papers were notorious for not only stretching the truth, but simply making stories up. A companion in a graveyard at night? We're not talking about Mary Shelley here, so why not name him or her? Anyway, on December 29th, night watchman William Girdler saw the ghost near Beaver Lane and gave chase. This time, the ghost shrugged off its shroud and managed to escape. There's no report from there about this shroud, but with fear rising in the area, locals began forming armed patrols in the hope of catching the ghost. Why not call the police, you ask? Well, because at this time, London did not have police. They had a, they had a day watch and a night watch, but it wasn't until 1839 that London gained an official police force. So there's no police, we've got dark streets, and a ghost assaulting people around Hammersmith. It was a few days later on January 3rd of 1804 that our local night watchman, William Girdler, was again on his rounds. At about 10.30 that night, he met 29-year-old Francis Smith. Francis was an excise officer and a local of Hammersmith that wanted to find the supposed ghost. He was also armed with a shotgun. The two spoke and had agreed to meet again a little after 11pm once William had called the hour. Not sure you could say it's 11pm and all's well with a ghost floating about, but let's go with that. Uh, I think it was the Pan Am episode where I mentioned the incredibly long hours that people worked in the 19th century England. Thomas Millwood was a local bricklayer that worked those long hours. Having laid bricks, I can say it is strong physical work and takes a lot of practice to be good at it. But working 12 or 14 hours a day would certainly give you that practice. And at the end of a long day, you would be, I can guarantee it, exhausted. Thomas had finished his day and even taken the time to visit his parents and sister after work. Dressed in the traditional bricklayer's outfit of linen trousers, waistcoat and an apron all of clean white, he bid his sister farewell as she saw him to the door. He stepped out there into Black Lion Lane to go home. And that's when Francis Smith shot him. It was just after 11pm. As he said goodbye to his sister, the challenge came from the street. Damn you, who are you and what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you. And shoot him, Francis did. The bullet striking through Thomas's lower left jaw and killing him. 
Smith was arrested and tried for what was called willful murder. Thomas had been married and his wife, Mrs. Fulbrook, stated that during the trial she had told her husband on previous occasions to cover up his white clothing because he had already been mistaken for a ghost. The Lord Chief Baron Sir Archibald MacDonald presided over the case. He observed that Smith had no argument for self-defence, nor had he been provoked. He directed the jury to find Smith guilty if they believed the evidence presented to them. The jury found Smith guilty of manslaughter. Why manslaughter? Well, because they took into account Smith's testimony that he sincerely believed he was shooting at the Hammersmith ghost, the very ghost that had been attacking people. It was Smith's belief in that ghost that decided the jury decision of manslaughter. But the Lord Chief Baron refused this verdict. Can you imagine that today? He stated that they must find Smith guilty of murder or be innocent. The jury assessed the evidence again, and this time came back with the sentence. Guilty. Now, this was an automatic sentence of death, and like William Corder from the Red Barn murder, hanging would then also be followed by dissection. But to Francis's good fortune, his sentence was commuted to one year's hard labour. Someone got lucky there, I think. Of course, a good murder trial was all over the newspapers at the time, and it was then that John Graham, a shoemaker by trade, confessed to being the Hammersmith ghost. It just gets juicier. John's apprentice had been scaring John's children with ghost stories, so John decided to get his own back and scare the young man. Thus, it was John Graham who was the Hammersmith ghost. Despite his confession, I can't find him having received any sort of punishment, although similar public stunts only received small fines rather than prison time, certainly no hangings or dissections. Francis Smith apparently served his time and disappeared from the public record, but the jury's decision of his belief in a threat, that is, the ghost, as an excuse was then set as a legal precedent that could later be used in law. And it was used later. In the Crown versus Williams case, the details were that a man had been attacked by a mugger. A good Samaritan then came along to the victim's rescue and attacked the mugger. The Samaritan was then himself attacked by a William Gladstone who thought that the mugger was actually a victim. The lawyer used the precedent of a belief in a threat to defend Gladstone's actions. The court decided this was a valid defence and Gladstone walked. So a legal precedent set because of an apparent ghost saw a man walk unconvicted. That was in 1984, 180 years since Francis Smith shot poor Thomas Millwood.
that London was certainly a city with a citizenry that expressed strong beliefs in what might be paranormal. 20 years after that case in 1824, reports in Southampton described a ghost assaulting people. It was described as being 10 feet tall and also reportedly escaped capture by jumping over houses. And in October of 1837, Springheeled Jack appeared in London. Mary Stevens had been visiting her parents in Battersea and was on her way to work when she was passing through Clapham Common when a figure jumped out of her from a darkened alley. Hands that were later described as being cold and clammy as a corpse gripped her while the figure began to not only kiss her face, but tear at her clothes. The poor girl screamed in terror, and her attacker fled. Her screams heard, people rushed to help, but the search proved fruitless. Throughout the rest of 1837, a number of attacks occurred. In one of these, as the creature fled, it was seen jumping over a nine feet high wall while a high-pitched ringing laugh was heard. So, named for his ability to jump great heights, Springheeled Jack was born. In some instances, Jack attacked women in the dimly lit streets. On other occasions, the doorbell of their home would be rung and upon opening the door, the poor woman would be assaulted. Clawed hands would grab and tear at their clothes until he suddenly bolted and left them traumatised. Witnesses described the attacker as being a man, being a ghost, an imp or even a devil. Sometimes he was wearing red shoes and other times armour. No different from today, the newspapers played up every sordid, dramatic detail. Bad news does sell newspapers after all, and panic began to spread throughout London. In January of 1838, Sir John Cowan, the Lord Mayor of London, went on record at a public meeting stating that he had received information stating that the attacks were being caused by a group of of rich men who were simply pulling pranks as part of some sort of wager. The stories became more incredulous as the press reported on women, mainly servant girls, answering the door and being attacked. Naturally being women, they went into dangerous fits, with some of these girls becoming permanent burdens upon their families. Reportedly, some even died of fright. Papers do love to sell copy, don't they? On February 9th, 1838, Jane Alsop answered the door of her home. A man was standing there covered in a heavy cloak, saying that he was a police officer and asking for her to bring a light. For they had caught Springheeled Jack. Bringing the officer a candle, the moment she returned threw off the cloak and presented what Jane described as a, quote, most hideous and frightful appearance, end quote. He vomited blue and white flame from his mouth and had eyes that were like red balls of fire. Wearing a large helmet, his shedding of the cloak revealed a tight-fitting white oilskin-like outfit. 
he said nothing but simply attacked, tearing at Jane's gown with metallic claws. Screaming, she ran into the house, and when one of her sisters came out hearing the attack, he fled. The attack was one of the most detailed of the time, and even made the reputable Times newspaper in the day. But Jack wasn't finished. Eight days later, 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister were walking home in the East London suburb of Limehouse. Passing the Green Dragon Alley, a person wearing a large cloak confronted them and spurted a quantity of blue flame into her face. Reportedly, she lost her sight and, naturally alarmed, she dropped to the ground. She was then seized with violent fits which continued for several hours. Lucy's sister described the attacker as tall, thin and of a gentlemanly appearance. He was carrying a small lamp, not unlike those used by the local police. He did not attack after spewing the blue flame but simply walked away. Both attacks describe this blue flame but what is interesting is that Jane's report while being earlier than Lucy's, was not reported until March. So Lucy would have no way of knowing about the first attack or the blue flame. It was after Jane's attack made the news that a bright spark by the name of Thomas Milbank boasted one night at his local pub that he was Springheeled Jack. He was promptly arrested and tried and in court evidence came up that his personal greatcoat had been left at one of the scenes and the candle that he had been given by Jane that he had dropped was also presented as evidence. And yet he escaped conviction. Why, how did that happen? Yes, I can hear you asking those very questions. Jane Alsop had of course stated that her attacker had breathed blue fire. Under oath... Thomas Milbank was forced to admit, no, he could not breathe blue fire, and he walked. One of the more odd ways to escape conviction, I think. Oh, and the officer that had arrested Milbanks? Well, if you've been listening to other Gaslamp podcasts, you already know him, and thanks to listening to more than one. That man was James Lee. James had been the arresting officer of one William Corder the infamous Red Barn murderer of Maria Martin. Reports of Jack began to slow down, even as he became a part of the pop culture of the day. He appeared in plays, naturally the penny dreadful papers of the day, and like the aforementioned William Corder, Spring-Heeled Jack even appeared as a character in Punch and Judy shows. Later in 1843, reports sprang up in Northamptonshire, with Jack being described as the very image of the devil himself. Reports of the jumping attacker begin to slow down though, but in 1847, a Captain Finch from Devon was convicted of two assault charges against women, during which he wore a coat of a bullock's hide, a skull cap and a mask. And then decades later in 1877 at Newport Arch in Lincoln, Spring-Heeled Jack was seen wearing a sheepskin. A mob pursued him and even shot him, but to no effect, with Spring-Heeled Jack leaping away to escape. The last report was in Liverpool in 1904, and since then Jack has not 
been seen. In the popular culture of the 19th century, Springhill Jack came to be a sort of boogeyman used to scare children. If they didn't behave, Jack would leap up into their bedrooms to peer at them through their windows. Even to this day, Springhill Jack is known. In the 2015 video game release Assassin's Creed Syndicate, the legend makes an appearance across London to be pursued by the main characters. So who was Springhill Jack? No one knows. No one has ever been caught. No diary of adventures was ever found. No reason for the theatrical attacks was discovered. Today, he just lives on in the folklore of the great city of London. So beware, kids. If you live in the city and you don't listen to your parents when they tell you to go to bed, you might find Springhilled Jack peeking through your window. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>